it would mean to have God's perspective. This opening slide is a very gentle introduction. And basically it begins like this, identifying what we mean by the word perspective. You can see at the very top of that slide that by that word we mean, it's the approach that a person has toward life, toward themselves, toward in fact the totality of that which takes place around them. And in light of having God with us, you and I know that those who are with God have a very, very different perspective than those who do not have that position. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice to borrow the words of Philippians 4.4. 4. So those who are with God, those who are such that God is with them, they have the opportunity, yea, the privilege of expressing an attitude of rejoicing even in the midst of circumstances which from an earthly perspective may be far from ideal. You may notice about the middle of that slide, you and I know very, very well that it's true that though life may have its moments of happiness and joy and things proceed with smoothness, if you live very long, you just know there are going to be times of disappointment. Dealing with others, be it at the workplace, even in the family, even others, perhaps neighbors or otherwise, you understand that there shall be moments and times of disagreement, even tension, despair, maybe even overwhelming disagreement. And when that takes place, aren't you and I thankful that having the perspective of God allows you and I to feel very differently than we, other, than we otherwise would? Today, I would ask that we develop these thoughts in a somewhat more thorough way as we not only use the 23rd Psalm to aid us, but many other verses as well to help us cast a spotlight on what it means to have perspective with God. So why don't we, in fact, look at a few passages related to reflections with God. And would you please be returning to Psalm 23. That passage has been, and no doubt shall continue to be, a passage of tremendous comfort and strength for those who are bearing the difficulties of grief over the loss of a loved one. But as we've often noted, this passage can be so often used in much different circumstances than just death. It begins in that familiar way, the Lord is my shepherd. Notice he doesn't say he was my shepherd. He is, present tense. I hope that that describes you and I such that we, every moment of every day, feel as if we are under the precious tutelage and guidance of a loving, ever-provisional shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. Near the top of that slide, you might note, this isn't the only place in the wonderful Word of God wherein God is portrayed as a shepherd. Could I draw your attention to the 100th Psalm? That no doubt is a favorite of many, but at least one of the phrases in it, we are the sheep of His pasture. And he was talking about God. You and I, as individuals upon the earth, those who love the Lord and pursue His way, we are the sheep of His pasture. Just as surely as the ancient shepherds would look with care and, look, and would look with great intrigue to the well-being of the sheep under their care, David here exclaimed the same is true of God. The shepherds of the ancient world, you and I no doubt have often given the frequency of the mention in the Bible. We know that they would lead their sheep 
there weren't fences, at least as often as you and I think of them around here. Each landowner has his or her fence, and there may be some sheep in that little pasture, but it was very different back then. There, that shepherd would look for appropriate pasturage, water, the other things needful for the safeguarding of those sheep. And that would even include being aware of wolves and other kind of animals that would seek to do harm to the sheep. And if necessary, the shepherd would often risk his life in order to protect the life of the sheep. One of the statements sometimes made, especially in John chapter 10, is that the shepherd, when there was a rock edifice or a rock wall, which often could in fact be found, a number of shepherds would bring their individual flocks of sheep into that place. And given that there was one door, the shepherd would sleep at that door to ensure that no animals like wolves or otherwise could get in and wreak havoc among the sheep. David said, the Lord is my shepherd. What does it mean? I shall not want. It would be arguable, arguably difficult to find four greater words of application than that. Because God is His shepherd, He says, I won't want. I shall not want. You may notice on the slide, as you and I develop that more thoroughly, that sheep was provided for. Again, under the direction and provision of the shepherd. David now, speaking of himself, said, I shall not want either. What about you? Are you wanting? Is your emotional health for some reason not as you would wish it to be? What about your other aspects of life? Are you tense-filled? Are you living a life of concerning care to the point where the challenges that you face are beginning to overwhelm you? May I point out that David had many challenges to face as well. There were enemies without, and a lot of them. And yet David could hear say, The Lord is my shepherd, and for that reason I shall not want. As you and I read even further, you notice he then says, He maketh me. He's not talking about a sheep here. He makes me, David, a human being, a person, He makes me to lie down in green pastures. Do you and I know the greenness of pastures in our life? Do we understand the provision they offer and the blessedness that comes with them? He makes me to lie down in green pastures. Not only that. Verse number 2, He leads me beside the still waters. The two things that a sheep, of course, needed carefully were necessary water supply and necessary pasturage. And here, in comparison, David affirmed in his heart and life that God had made these available and provided them. And not only that, David was so mindful of the one from whom they came. I hope you and I are so thankful. Being appreciative of the fact that those blessings we do enjoy are from the hand of one far greater than we. Brother Roger led us in prayer earlier in which he even noted from James 1.17, Every good gift... And every perfect gift is from above, and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. I believe we'd each say that so far, at least by my comments, we have sort of given thought to the physical aspects of life. But aren't we all aware of the fact that the greatest provision by far has to do that things are well with our soul? 
that things for us are spiritually well. Many of the songs in our songbook attach to that thought. Things are well with our soul. Of course, David is going to have some things to say about that in the next verse. Let's go ahead and reread it and make some additional comments. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for His name's sake. The greatest abundance that you and I enjoy is the abundance that comes from the provision of things so that matters beyond this life are well. You and I know so easily our time here will come to an end very quickly. Not only does our common experience teach us that, the Bible does too. Our life is like a vapor. It appears for a little while and then vanishes away, James 4.13. Aren't you thankful for a mechanism, a means, a thoroughfare, whereby things can be well. We can ease through the valley of death in such a fine and abundant way. Sometimes we often talk about crossing the Jordan. The Jordan River and the crossing of it has come to at least be used to describe in a poetic way death. When the children of Israel crossed the Jordan River, what awaited for them on the other side? A land flowing with milk and honey. A land of protection, provision, where God, by virtue of things from ages past, had identified to them He was leading them to this place. You and I can cross that Jordan River of death and look for better things on the other side. But that will only be true if we've lived for the Lord here. Neither is there salvation in any other. For there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. To borrow the words of Acts 4 verse 12. Surely in that connection, when the writer here was able to say, He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Each of us have known what it's like to be sinners. We understood what that was like, and then we obeyed the gospel. He washed from our life all the guilt connected to those sins, and we were able to live in harmony with Him, understanding His way and the provision that perspective with Him offers. It may be that we faltered along the way and slipped from that life of faithfulness, but He's still there wanting the sheep that's gone astray to come back home. Jesus talked about that in Luke 15, did He not? Perhaps it is in that light. Let's transition to the next slide and develop all of this with a few applications of the general statements we've made at least to this point. The Lord is my shepherd. What does that mean? at least in some directed ways. First of all, hope in God, according to the Word of God, produces some very evident fruits, some very evident consequences. And one of them spoken of is that of joy. Are you joyful? Am I joyful? Are we individuals who understand that our life here, regardless of the circumstances that may surround it, we are able to rest in a higher plane to the point where we understand, well, there's a far better measure awaiting the faithful of God, which we understand to be ourselves. You may notice I've asked you to appreciate somewhat of Jeremiah 17, verse 17. I'm sorry, verse 7. Jeremiah 17, verse number 7. Where there, as God spoke through the prophet Jeremiah, 
he made this statement. The hope of the Lord is, in terms of, the, uh, in terms of our Heavenly Father, blessed is the man that trusteth in the Lord, and in whose hope the Lord is. There is a blessedness attached. And of course, that was back in the time when God's people, by and large, were living unfaithfully. And yet they were admonished and they were reminded that for those that trusted the Lord, for those who develop in their lives a faithful obedience to Him, there's hope. There's joy. There's a connection to, again, what's better than these present circumstances. Isn't it true, then, that this is one great distinction? The world, without God, wallows in present circumstances. It sees in it nothing but evil and a woe-is-me attitude. But the Christian says he or she understands that God's in control of this matter. And that faithfulness to Him, I shall always emerge victorious. And I shall emerge in a way because God, as my shepherd, will provide for me. That world of difference is not easily described to those who don't know it. No wonder it's so keen to appreciate what comes next on the slide. The God of heaven is portrayed all throughout the Word of God as the absolute one who is victorious. And those who are with Him are also portrayed that way. God's people may appear to be defeated, dejected, run over and afflicted, but yet they will invariably emerge victorious. That was true in the Old Testament. It shall be true today. In 2 Corinthians 2 verse 14, we are always led in triumph in Christ. Your triumph and mine on our own is bound to fail. But in Christ... In the Lord, connected to God, that perspective is pronounced to be a victorious thing. In addition to that, you may note what comes next. As Paul arrived at the middle chapter, Romans 8, of that wonderful letter to the Romans, he had already developed in the preceding seven chapters some amazing appreciations, some encouraging statements, and certainly time would fail us to revisit those in great detail now. But you remember the reality of sin. That's true for both Jew and Gentile. It's true for you and me as well. All have sinned to come short of the glory of God, Romans 3 verse 23. However, Paul soon develops the marvelous statement of what faith in the Lord shall bring. And by the time he reaches chapter number 7 verse 24, you notice what sin does. Sin brings about a wretchedness. It brings about such a darkness. It brings about, you see, separation from God. And so Paul cried out, Who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Because that's what sin does. Thanks be unto God, chapter 8. At least starts like this, but it'll also end in the way we shall emphasize in a moment. There is no condemnation to those who walk not after the flesh but who walk after the Spirit. To those connected to God, there is no condemnation. There is no evil connected to that separation because they are living for the Lord. Verse number 31 is that well-known text that asks this question, the answer to which all of us know, if God be for us, who can be against us? 
Talk about perspective. Doesn't that say it so well? Therefore, beginning in verse number 35 of that chapter, Who shall separate us from the love of God? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, but on all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You may have noticed Paul there highlighted, there are those looking from the outside who will say that we are defeated and dejected and we are counted as sheep for the slaughter. But then the comment is quickly made, but in reality we are more than conquerors. Nothing can separate us from the love of God except ourselves. External forces can't do it. Enemies can't do it. Others who may have at their advantage ourselves, they are not able to do it either. Only I can separate myself from the love of God, and that's true of you. If I want to live apart from His love, I can do it. And if I want to go to hell, I can do it. But it's not His desire nor His wish. God wishes all men to come to a knowledge of the truth, 1 Timothy 2, 4. He wants all men to repent, 2 Peter 3, 9. His love as a shepherd... He's led us then to note what you'll note near the bottom of that slide. The victory that you and I appreciate is something that the faithful of the ages has well understood. Job was able to say it like this in Job 13, 15, Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Job had an understanding in life connected so strongly that even despite his friends' assertions, he knew they weren't right. And so he didn't follow their advice. Do you and I have friends sometimes who do not have the perspective of God and who thus insist upon us things which are not correct? May we be as wise as Job, if that be true. And may we understand the sentiment of 1 Corinthians 15, verse 33. Be not deceived. Evil communications corrupt good manners. As you and I close that slide before us, isn't it true that God has made provision by His promise in terms of providing for His children. I have been young, and now am old. Yet have I not seen the righteous forsaken, or his seed begging bread. That statement of Psalm 37, 25, doesn't it teach us, here was an aged David, who was able to say, I've never seen a person devoted to God suffer hunger and starve to death. I've never seen the person faithful to God reach a point in life of being destitute and without the necessities of life. I've never seen it. God was provided. And Jesus assured us in Matthew 6 that He always will. In fact, aren't we reminded we're, more, we're of more value than birds? God takes care of the birds. Won't He take care of us? We're more valuable than flowers and as beautifully arrayed as they are, aren't we more valuable than they? Surely, you and I can feel that that kind of a perspective challenges us and also comforts us. Notice what Jesus said. In Matthew 6, verse number 33, Seek ye first the kingdom of God 
and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. The things of which the Master spoke were those physical issues He had just mentioned, like food and raiment and shelter. If you and I place the kingdom first, we are assured by none less than the Son of God Himself that those matters will be provided, that He will in fact ensure that we have them. Aren't we thankful for a God who is that loving? Jesus otherwise would say in Matthew chapter 7 that there when a son asks something of his father, for instance, something to eat, will the father give him a rock? Well, of course not, because in love that father will give that which the son needs at that time and on that occasion. For that reason, I've asked you to note this. Jesus said in Matthew 6, 32, that those that are ungodly, they cast a spotlight upon these physical things, be it food or be it raiment or be it shelter, and it is on that that they concentrate and they completely miss the blessedness of the greater provision of God. You and I as Christians would never make that mistake. And therefore, we don't give overt worry to those matters connected to the things of this life. We trust in God's protection and we trust in His provision. Aren't we told in Philippians 4, 7, the peace of God shall pass all understanding, and it shall guard your hearts and minds through Jesus Christ our Lord. We must be so thankful to have that kind of a perspective and the matters that follow from it. It might well be in that connection. We can at least revisit then what it means to speak about He restores my soul. Has your soul been restored? Has it been brought from a place which was in great doom and danger to a place of protective provision, a place of security? I would point out that the Word of God on several occasions at least makes reference to that idea and surely one of the nicest ones must be the one in Matthew 13. Do you recall the Lord's reference to the barn? Now you maybe you and I have found occasions at the barn weren't always pleasant. If Dad took the strap to you behind the barn, that's not the most pleasant of memories, I'm sure. Or maybe the barn was a place where it was a lot of hard work. Maybe again, that aspect is true, but isn't it also true that the barn was often a place of safety. You'd bring the cows out of the field and when storms were at least predicted of sufficient severity, you'd bring them into the barn. Or in the winter when the cold was especially severe, you might bring them into the barn there again. Sometimes if the barn was well constructed, you might even go there in times of storm instead of the house. At the very least, Jesus said that I'm going to gather my children into the barn. Matthew 13, and the ungodly out in the field will be bound and burned. I hope we never lose sight of the image of that picture. As the nice sheaves, the obedient ones, we are going to be brought into the barn. And we are going to enjoy the protection and provisions of the Lord from that point forward. And those that are the, un, the, the disobedient, tragically, they are going to be bound and burned in the field. What a picture. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for His name's sake. 
The Apostle Paul knew well about the the perspective of God, didn't he? After that scene on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9, he gave his life in full force to obedience to God. He served Him with faith. He served Him with conviction. And He can can even say in 2 Timothy 1.12, I know whom I believed, and I'm persuaded He is able to keep that which I've committed unto Him against that day. He had invested in the Lord, and He knew that God would protect and preserve him as well. It is for that reason that in 2 Timothy 4, the closing chapter that we have knowledge that Paul wrote, is that scene beginning in verse 6 of that chapter. I fought a good fight. I finished my course. I've kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of life, which the Lord the righteous judge shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all of them also that love is appearing. Paul knew what waited beyond death, and he seemingly was excited to participate in it. What about you and me? Can you approach death knowing your soul is secure? Can you approach death knowing that that which awaits on the other side is far better? I might say that in our world, that's often portrayed for nearly everyone. But you and I know that's not true for everyone. If you don't live in the Lord, you can't possibly die in the Lord. And yet those are the only ones in Revelation 14, 13 who are pronounced with that blessedness which awaits beyond. This next slide, as it proceeds in that direction, allows us to to conclude this part of our lesson like this. It begins with a question. Given what you and I have learned today, and the protection and the provision as a shepherd that God offers us, shouldn't we be confident? Shouldn't we appreciate that whatever the enemy may do, and by that we mean the devil, you and I have... Connection to one stronger than He. Stronger than He. We can all look around and see how strong He is. This world in so many ways is under His clutches. The decisions that we see being made, the pursuit of the masses of people, it seems so harmful and it seems so disastrous. And yet you and I are connected by virtue of the teaching of the Lord to the one who died for us. And we know that due to that attachment, we can have every confidence. A Christian ought to be a confident person. When someone asks of you or me, are you going to go to heaven when you die? I hope we can say something better than I hope so. That sounds so doubtful. It sounds so questioning. Can we not say, based on the conviction of the Lord and my faithful obedience to Him, the Bible says that I will. And that kind of confidence should help place in us one of the consequences of having a perspective with God. Let's go to our final page. And why don't we say this? In conclusion, we've been reminded that the 23rd Psalm set us on a course of thinking about a perspective with God. As we close this particular lesson, there's but one statement that I would wish to read from Psalm 128. Now this one, of course, course, occurring far later in the Psalms, is one which nonetheless has a thought that should cross our mind. I'll start reading in verse 1. Blessed is every one that feareth the Lord, that walketh in His ways. 
For thou shalt eat the labor of thine hands. Happy shalt thou be, and it shall be well with thee. I don't think I could say it any better than that. Happy shalt thou be, and it shall be well with thee. If you and I allow the devil too much control, if we allow him any control, our life is not going to be described by many of the things we've noted today. Our life may be filled with many thoughts which divide the mind, bring about worry, and cause us to not have the kind of consequence that perspective with God will bring. If you need to obey the Lord in a public way today, may I say that there will never be a better day than this one. The 30th day of October, 2022. It is a day that can ring for all eternity with the consequence of your obedience. If you've never obeyed the gospel, why don't you believe on the Lord? The Bible is true. He did live and He died. He died on the cross. He established the church. And He wants you above all things else to be a faithful part of it. Upon that belief, repent of your sins. Turn aside from them. Don't have an intent to commit them again. Make a confession of the name of Christ and be baptized. The baptismal waters are all prepared and ready, and today we could assist you in becoming a Christian. If you've known the life of a Christian, and maybe you don't knew about perspective with God, but over time you've made decisions, you've made choices that have removed that hope from your life. Don't you know the Lord loves you? He hasn't given up on you. He doesn't want you to be lost. His chief desire is for you to come back to, his, to your first love with Him. Today, if you will make repentance of those sins, make confession again of them, we would be, de- we would be determined and honored to approach God in prayer. And what a day of celebration, a day of rejoicing, a day of genuine heartfelt happiness for you and for the angels in heaven it would be. In Luke 15, when one sitter repents, there is more rejoicing in heaven than over ninety and nine that need no repentance. Today, if we could help, assist, encourage, if we could study with you, we'd be delighted to do that as well. We will use this opportunity to offer an invitation for the joys chosen, the song that's been announced. If you would wish to come, won't you do it while together we stand and while we sing?